For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Hertel, I'm Andrew Johnson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we try to turn down the noise in the news cycle, give you good information from knowledgeable guests, talk about the things that matter. Don't talk about the things that don't matter more than we have to, or at least try to, and try to discern the times as best we can and get the good information we need to do so. It's might have heard tell that it's Veterans Day. And there's a lot of things we could do for Veterans Day. First, we just thank all the veterans for serving. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of a country without those efforts. But I want to talk about how veterans are treated in our country. And I don't want to get preachy about this. And I struggle with what I wanted to talk about on this day, especially after a week of covering mostly election stuff and heavy topics. So I went back to something I wrote way back in 2019, back when I was just kind of first started writing. And I wrote about the VA and I wrote about my own experiences with the VA medical system. I'm just going to read from it. This is from 2019. I'll link to it. You can read the entire piece. I'm in the middle of the VA debate, and I have no idea what the answers are. In fact, I'm convinced there isn't a simple, easy one. There isn't even a good way to quantify the problems. Maybe use a bunch of stats and numbers to show that despite more than doubling the budget for the VA over the last 10 years, the system is deluged in patients, crippled in staff shortages they cannot fill, and hamstrung by a bureaucracy that grows as fast as the issues do. Maybe point out that just this month, three veterans committed suicide on the grounds of VA facilities, making it at least 22 in the last 18 months to do so. This is from 2019. Maybe also point out that those 22 are just a fraction of the estimated 6,000 a year and that the suicide rate among VA patients is higher than that of veterans who are cared for elsewhere. Maybe point out that the quality of care received doesn't matter a bit if the veteran cannot navigate the benefits and claim system in an expedient manner to get the care in the first place, or can't get an appointment in a timely fashion or get a referral to the specialty that isn't available or is only available far away. Maybe point out that the plight of veterans is really popular to use when a politician says something wrong or a football player kneels, or some other political issue of the day needs draped in a flag to make its point more emotionally investing. But the rest of the time, America as a whole seems pretty content to do nothing substantial about it. If that seems cold, so sorry. But evidence demands a verdict, and if things haven't improved over different Congresses and different presidents and different eras, the problem does not lie solely at any of the feet of politicians of either party, but with all of us. Otherwise, we would have made them do something about it. The truth is the government can no more fix the VA than I can fix it for my bathroom floor. Veterans Affairs is the government, but it's also us too. The two are inseparable, and that's the problem. The VA is where all the fantastic ideology and political, economic, health care, and social theories go to die. 
a living example of their limits. Are you a proponent of socialized government run or single payer health care? VA has the good and the bad of that. Then government should keep its promises regarding benefits. VA has the good and the bad of that. Have strong thoughts on the roles of government in healthcare. VA has the good and the bad of that. Which is why anyone using the VA as an example for their ideology is going to have to, at best, cherry pick their examples. So most don't. Refusing to look at the mirror the VA is reflecting back at us as a country. Those theories have good and bad points and their limits are in full view within the VA system. So most folks just refuse to look or acknowledge it. It will be a political football for all time, as the VA itself is, subject to the whims of Congress critters who will speechify how voting for X numbers of dollars proves they care. It will still be a cabinet position appointed by whoever is president, overseeing the second largest department of government and the third largest government agency. You didn't know that, right? That the second largest part of the federal government third largest federal agency we have after its first cousin, the Department of Defense, and a few other things like the post office is Veterans Affairs. It's growing by the minute, nearly as big as the next two largest departments put together. It takes as much of Washington to care for 18 million people the way the VA does it. And it's a shambles most of the time, but it's a necessary shambles for good or ill since it was promised to the people who rely upon it. Until the day it is replaced with something better, and I'm skeptical of that ever coming, the VA is it for the 18 million veterans our country has and the 9 million that stream through the doors of VA healthcare facilities every year. Blaming the them, them in quotes, them the buzzwords, them the lazy thought of whoever's at fault, it's always them. Blaming the them of government and politicians for the mess that the VA is the base alloy of VA dysfunction. Reagan's off-quoted line about government being the problem has merit, but it's only half the story. Having a representative democracy means we have the government we choose to have. And allowing something to continue without change is the same as choosing. You made a decision. You chose to do nothing. It's easier to blame the dysfunction than to look in the mirror of what our chosen government is doing and realize our own hand in it. How the VA is administered affects far more than just veterans. If we want to have a national conversation on health care for the 320 million rest of us, and specifically the government's role in that, we should take a long, hard, honest look at how the same government is currently struggling with only 9 million who use the VA healthcare system each year. Most of those veterans are dependent on the VA for more than just their health care and benefits check, and our government treats those dependents as a fair judge of how it would treat the rest of us. There are no easy answers to the future of veterans' affairs. There are plenty of problems still beneath shining exteriors of the multitude of brand new facilities the VA is building across the country. Throwing more and more taxpayer money at it isn't the answer, nor is abandoning the Leviathan to its fate. Whatever the answers are, it will start with a humbling and honest look at what the VA is and isn't, what it was meant to be, and what we've allowed it to become. Then and only then can we figure out the right path to what it should be and make it actually about caring for those who have borne the battle, and not just a partisan battle over who can appear to care more. Actions, not words. If we really care about our veterans, our country would show it in how we actually care for our veterans. We should be doing a hell of a lot better. More hurt right after this. You 
know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ah, welcome to Hertel. Okay, our economist friend is back. He is our four-letter government economic specialist. He's also done some various things like organ wrestling, which we were talking about beforehand, but we got to get this to the serious business now. Uh, Stephen Popik, the artist formerly known as Moto Economist. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great on this Friday, Andrew. I hope you're doing well. Hanging in there, buddy. Uh, <laughs> let's just talk economics for a second. Let's do some big picture stuff. We know on paper the economy's in pretty decent shape, all things considered, the fundamentals of it. However, there's inflation going on. That's the core dynamic of communicating economics right now, right? It's like by the book, there's a lot of good stuff, but inflation's going on. Is that I know that's really, really simplified, but that's basically the nut of all the problems right now, right? I think that's a fair thing to say. I mean, it, it, I've called this economy repeatedly weird. We had two quarters of negative GDP growth, by the way, followed by a third quarter, by, by the next quarter, that had really spectacular GDP growth. You know, um, we've had uh, employment gains continue, uh, despite lots of commentators out there thinking that we've had to have exhausted all the available labor supply. Turns out, nope, nowhere close to that. But yeah, the elephant in the room, has been and will continue to be this persistent inflation. And uh, you had him on, my friend Joey, you've had him on, Palatonic. Um, you, know, you know, he has produced a nice series of graphics that clearly shows that some of the drivers from the beginning of the year of inflation that we thought would be temporary, right, energy costs, um, et cetera, disruptions to supply chain are abating. So those drivers are were not persistent. They are coming down like a lot of us thought they would. But what has shifted now is that core inflation, things not subject to a lot of variability, um, has continued to uptick and remain persistently high. Um, and you can't just explain all of it by wage gains. Um, you know, and, and, and that is a pattern that seems likely to continue through the end of the year. Not that we'll see increases in the inflation rate, but that we'll continue to see elevated rates. Like it's it's like you 
you climbed up on top of the mountain and there's a plateau and you got to go a little bit before you can start going back down the mountain. But here's the problem is I don't think we understand the mountain. Like you said, this is weird and economic. Let's be fair. Economics is a hard thing to communicate in mass media. It just is because it's detailed. It's nuanced. There's a lot of layers to it. There's math. It's a little hard to. Yeah, the, the weird thing was when we when we had two quarters of negative GDP growth, we had still positive employment going up and up and up. And like just our last employment report that dropped this morning. Right. They they thought we were going to add about two hundred thirty thousand jobs to the economy. Um, we added two hundred sixty thousand. And you go into that data and you can clearly see, no, these are not part timers. These are not bad jobs. These are good quality jobs that we keep adding. But the inflation continues to eat away at household balance sheets. Now, I think I have an idea of what might be driving inflation and why we might see it start coming down. And I think we sort of missed this a little bit, but it's come around pretty, pretty clear. Um, We had an awful lot of stimulus money back in 2020 and 2021 in this country. We also had a lot of shutdown um, and people uh, reacting to uncertainty essentially stopped spending some money. So household balance sheets got a lot better on average. Essentially households flush with cash. So then when the economy is reopened in 2022 and we start seeing inflation running away, part of the story is there's just a lot more spending going on. There's more money out there in the system and things are getting bid up. If you look at figures that sort of detail how much, quote, excess savings we have, uh, above and beyond sort of what we would normally expect to see in household balance sheets, we can see that right now that excess savings, it's starting to be exhausted, but there's still some left. Like we're starting to see the excess savings come down. We're on the other side of that mountain, but we're not, we haven't fully exhausted those excess savings. I don't think inflation really is going to start seeing a, a, a dive down um, until those excess savings sort of get completely exhausted and we're back sort of where we thought we should be on par if it was 2019. Now, of course, the Fed's also trying to make that happen a little bit sooner by uh, raising uh, the Fed funds rate and, and trying to slow down the economy a little bit. Or yeah. a lot, honestly. Stephen Popic with us. Let's let's just go there, though. How much of this is just COVID being such a once in a however long pick your time frame event that just completely screwed up the economy? Because we don't really have a good metric for us purposely shutting our own economy down in large swaths. Like that just has never happened before. How much? And let's be honest here. A lot of people were calling for a downturn before COVID ever happened. And we had kind of artificially been inflating it and nobody really wanted it to come down. And we can debate all those later. At some point, the economy was going to come back down a little bit because it had been doing well. And then we had COVID on top of it, and we kind of artificially shut a lot of things down because of COVID. We just don't have any metric for any of that. So are we just dealing with a lot of after effects that people don't fully understand? I mean, if you look at every developed country that has some comparability to the United States, they're also dealing with persistently high un, uh, high inflation. Now, unlike the United States, many of these countries still have a, a somewhat, uh, somewhat of an issue with unemployment. Um, and they're not seeing as much success in other avenues of the economy that the U.S. has had. So it seems like if you look at uh, look at us compared to the developed world, our response has been pretty good. But this persistent inflation issue, it doesn't seem to be just a choice that we created by our own U.S. policy. It, it's definitely something that happened worldwide, which, as you said, leads to the idea that 
this was a COVID thing, right? Because that, that affected everyone. And, and you know, I, I take some solace on the fact that we seem to be doing a bit better than other countries when we when that are comparable. So despite all of our issues and political challenges, we did something right. partners with us look is this num this thing where we just do job numbers i understand it has some is it just a political thing now because these numbers don't seem like you know well we had 261 instead of 325 or whatever the case may be we we've made a running joke out of the economic numbers or the unemployment numbers or the gdp unexpectedly every single time that is, is the media coverage of this just worthless now? Is it just a political and media buzzword well, thing without a whole lot of better? Because it doesn't seem like it's really moving the needle on any of this stuff. And people sure don't feel a difference in 75,000 difference in an unemployment report. Do we need to talk about this differently? Well, I mean, if you're one of those extra 30,000 people that got a job uh, from the last report that we didn't expect to get a job, uh, it probably matters a lot. But there are how many millions of people in this country? Most like most people are not going to notice those effects because they're they're not the ones that are experiencing the change, right? Um, so does it matter? Uh, it matters to uh, policymakers who are trying to figure out how to thread the needle. It matters to the Fed trying to figure out how they're going to do their basis point raises. It matters to businesses and business executives making plans about the future of the economy. Does it matter for our politics? Probably not. I mean, if you're going to, I know you might be having this uh, special on the election. The fact that we're right now even talking about the fact that it's equally likely there is a Republican tsunami or there is a Republican pond wave sort of shows like how people are set and how the economy is not going to really affect it because like, if this was a completely neutral election environment, we didn't have COVID and we had inflation about eight or nine percent, you would think that the party in charge would get absolutely shellacked and run out of town. The fact that the, there's a possibility that they don't, it's actually kind of shocking. And that tells me that partisanship is really anchored now, that we are clearly in two camps. Yeah, we were talking about this when we did the election preview of like, look, people forget 2018, the House swing was 41 seats to the Democrats. That's about as big of a blue wave as you're ever going to get congressionally in modern right. times. Mm -hmm. It lasted basically one election mm -hmm. and then they had erosion and then they lost the House. So technically two, but really they only got one election out of that whole big wave. The problem with waves is it goes in, it comes out and the next wave comes, right? I think we do the same thing with the unemployment number. I think we do the same thing with, you know, because these are quarterly reports. Most of them are quarterly reports. There's some others. Yeah. You know, I get it. You go to the beach, you're bouncing away. You're just getting hit wave after wave after wave. You got to go get on the beach and realize you're in the ocean. Do we need to have a longer viewpoint on this stuff and just stop chasing the quarterly numbers because we're losing a little bit of perspective on these things? 
I get it politically, especially right now, because, you know, we just had a midterm election. I get why we do it, but it doesn't seem to be very healthy and it doesn't seem to very, be very informative. And I don't think it's really, you know, moving the ball forward in these tough economic times that we're having because we can't get a good perspective on it if we're just chasing these numbers. In normal times, we get really good estimates of quarterly, quarterly uh, unemployment, quarterly employment, because we don't see very large revisions uh, to those figures. And I think it's worth to dive in. When they release these job reports, you know, they're based on preliminary assessment of data and not all that data has come in. And so that's why you see revisions a month later. That's why you see revisions a quarter later. It's not that they did a bad job. It's that they you can only make an estimate based on the data that you get in and sort of your under, your, your prediction about what, what's missing is out there. A prediction has error. So you're going to have shifts. And so we, we see that, you know, uh, in times where the economy is highly volatile, like now, um, you'll get a jobs report and it'll come in, you'll say plus 50,000 jobs unexpectedly. And then the second report that comes out says, uh, actually only about 5,000 jobs were added. So that was in line with expectations. But now that's two, three months after the fact. So, so I actually, when I look at these reports, I actually do go back and I look at the revisions and I start trying to understand the sort of the, the, the path of the economy, not just on the first set uh, of numbers, but sort of how those numbers have evolved over time in recent history. And that's sort of how I level set what I sort of what I really expect the jobs report to be. Um, unfortunately, with this new report coming out today, I haven't had the time yet to go back and sort of update my priors about where I think this is going to land post revisions. Talk about that real quick, though, because people know the unexpectedly part, and we make a joke of it. I already talked about it. The revisions confuse folks because, like, well, why is there a revision? Well, that's because the data, you know, more data comes in. It's a perspective thing. Uh -huh. But, you know, just explain that for the average person, why there's a revisions, why they ought to matter, why they don't seem to really matter, and why that headline comes off that first report anyway, even when the revision for last month was something like 50,000 jobs. So, so it's like this, and I'm going to do a really simple example. Um, you get 70% of your data in and your boss wants to, wants you to have, wants you to have a report by the end of the week. You can't wait for the other 30% to come in. Your boss said, get me the report. They're mandated to report it. You have to do it. So you make your best guess about what that 30% outstanding is. Flash forward another month, you've gotten that other 30%, that data has come in. So now you're going to use the real data and not your estimated data based on your past priors, your past beliefs. Um, and that's the reason why there's a revision. What I think would be really helpful when we talk about jobs numbers is a less of a focus on the baseline average estimate gain or loss. So we say the economy added 260,000 jobs. I'd like to hear the report say, the economy has added between 200,000 and 320,000 jobs in the last year. And, that, and the journalist should lead with that, you know, you know, and, and sure, of course, CNN could go, the economy's added at least 200,000 jobs and Fox could go, the economy's added at most 300,000 jobs. You know, I mean, the museum will still play with that, but I think for f folks can handle ranges. I mean, we get that. People play fantasy sports. We get ranges. So I think that would be a little bit
better of reporting to 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 level set with people the uncertainty you know we try to do that with political reporting we say you know, the generic ballot is the Republicans are up by two percentage points with a margin of error of 3%. Okay. So it might be even, Stephen, but odds are the Republicans got a little bit of a lead. Cool. You know, that's understandable, I think. And so I, I wish that we would have sort of that sort of reporting going on. I think that would help. Because then if you tell me, like, it's also a good sanity check. If you tell me we added between 200 and 320,000 jobs, and you revise that, and you say, "Ah, uh, yep, it was two hundred forty-five thousand." Well, that's that's a really good check on what you told me the last month because you're in that range. It makes sense. If you told me two hundred thousand or three hundred twenty thousand, oh, we added ten thousand jobs. Something wrong with your forecast. Stephen Popovnik with us. Speaking of things wrong with your forecast, I think we're talking about this labor situation wrong, not in total, but in part. I think, why is it, and I know kind of the answer, but I want the economic tilt on this, and you've also been an employee of various things. You have a diverse background, which is good for an economist because a lot of those folks don't. They go to school and they become economists. I'm not knocking them, it's just what it is. But you, you've been an employee that's gotten kicked around a little bit, right? Uh, I've had a few I, jobs in my life. I think when we're talking about this current labor situation, people are having a hard time getting their heads around why we have a labor shortage with low unemployment. I don't think we talk about the management structure. I don't think we talk about the corporate structure. I don't talk, think we talk about leadership. And I don't think we talk about the fact that we told most workers, especially service-side workers, exactly what we thought about them in COVID. And now we want to be all shocked and shaken that they believe us when we told them what we thought about them. And then we wonder why they're getting picky about their jobs. I think that's part of this story that everybody's not talking about. I think that's a huge part of this because it sure does explain, not all, it explains a lot of those, well, that's why they're moving between jobs and jobs. That's why they're openly mobile. And that's why the real low-end jobs, a lot of them are deciding to sit home instead of working a job that would be marginally, um, how do I phrase this in an economic way? But look, you got to make a certain amount of money to make it worthwhile to go to work because it's not free to get back and forth to work and commute and do all those sorts of things and have childcare and everything else. You get on the margins, a lot of those people just stay home because it's not worth it to them to work. I think that's something that's being way under-discussed. Yeah, I mean, look, we shut down the economy for a significant portion of 2020 and 2021. Uh, retail workers and service workers, you know, had to deal with, you know, uh, a lot of uncertainty with the virus while they still had to work. Right. So so and then we saw just how much of our economy just runs on that. And, and they are sort of the forgotten part. Um, maybe forgotten is not the wrong word, but overlooked. Um, and so, yeah, and then they're switching now jobs. They're, they're wanting better pay and benefits. We, we've talked about the uh, the Popeyes sort of, you know, job ads and what they're trying to do you know we've talked about factories trying to find different schedules so they can get the working moms back in for six hours a day um because they're desperate for labor and now they're having to do something to make themselves attractive um it's good in the sense that labor has more power on that and 
you know, there's it's good that white collar workers are able to say, do we really need to be going into the office two hours, you know, commuting a day for a lot of this stuff? No, you 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 don't. Um, management's gotten shaken up because management has to react to the changing environment. You know, labor's demanding more, but it's also been shown that past management practices maybe weren't really necessary or they really should have like changed with the modern times. Um, you know, I also think it explains a lot about our political culture. And I think, it, I think you know, the, the, how retail and service sector workers are, are treated, um, you know, and, and so I think it also explains a lot of sort of the, the angst and the, the disconnect that folks have with their local leaders and, and what they're really doing. So we're still working on understanding how the, how the I would call it the, the, the consumer facing side of the, of the economy uh, will be like in, in the future. Um, but you know, it, it definitely seems like workers at that level are pushing and holding out uh, for more benefits. And I think it was shown that they kind of they kind of need them. Stephen Popovnik with us. I'm going to throw you another Popovnik. 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 Whatever. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> You'll take your name and you like it. Work the gimmick, son. Uh, Stephen Popovnik with us. Uh, we're having we are having pronunciation issues, but that's okay. We're a little punch drunk because we're trying to deal with this election and an economy. We don't get paid enough for this, my friend. Um, I want to talk about po- the money and politics for a second. Sure. Okay. Out of my wheelhouse. Sounds good. Total spending on the election for 2012 was about seven billion dollars. 2016 total spending was right around seven to eight billion dollars. The 2018 midterm, this is a midterm, not in a not a presidential year, was $5.7 billion. The 2020 election was somewhere around $14.4 billion. Now, as an economist, y'all divide sectors of the economy up by billions. And of course, you know, like, you know, ag is in the trillions and technology is in the trillions and so on and forth. If I told you there was a sector of the economy that was growing at that rate and was now worth $14 billion, there would be people covering that sector of the economy. But because it's politics, we just lump it under politics. This is a huge chunk of our economy now. It touches on media. It touches on job. That's a job creator because all these we have a professional political class now. Mm -hmm. This is its own economic sector in America when you start talking about $14 billion for an election, right? That's a big number. It's also, I would say, it's a sector where I think the lines are blurred and where the sector begins and where the sector ends. So if this is a sector, how would you cover it differently? Taking the politics out, just say, okay, I've got this, I've just gotten hired by, you know, Acme Economic Magazine, and my beat is the politics sector, this $14 billion industry. How do you cover that a little differently than just politics? Because we don't put those two things together, but how our politics is presented, how campaigns are run, Follow the money, man. The money I mean, tells you a lot about it. I, what I would think about it is what what's the ROI of these activities? Right? The acronym. Sorry. What's the return on investment of these activities? Right? So if you're ding, a party, ding, 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 ding. you get the political control. You have control over the purse. You can put spending to where you want it to go. Relatively more. Democrats will prioritize one sector or one group. Republicans will prioritize something else. Maybe they'll both prioritize the the same people in the same group, um, but you know that 
that money that is spent on politics is to gain access to the levers of power. And what are you doing with those levers of power? So here's the problem with the return on investment metric. It really works great when we talk about like defense spending. You know, are you getting the new military base in your district? Are you getting this or getting that? Right. That that makes sense. When you talk about the fact that many voters are not um, motivated at the ballot box by um, an econ issue, but a social issue, whether that be Black Lives Matter or be pro-life issues, um, how do you value, how do you calculate return on investment there? Uh, that's, a, that's a little bit difficult, but I mean, that, that is why the money is being spent. That is why it's there. To me, that is an important perspective on our politics, that it is a business. It's a business for the media. It's a business for the candidates. It's a business for the staffers. It's a business for folks like you and me to commentate on it and do, you know, alternate media. Not that we're making very much money on it. I make we're available. <laughs> DM's open. We take PayPal. But the point is, this thing is an ecosystem. And uh, the and the buzzwords and the parties and the candidates and the personalities and the policy issues are one part of it. But there's this whole ecosystem underneath it. And if you don't understand the ecosystem and you just look at those top line items, I think you don't have a perspective of what the entire beast is. And then, look, as I said, the lines are blurred. Where does Twitter fit in all of this? Right. I mean. I don't think that's well, right be, now. It's driving all of it because everybody's lost their minds. But 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 I like when you told me those figures of how much money is being spent, right? Maybe you got you grabbed some money that was being spent on Twitter ads, but Twitter itself is driving a lot. Facebook itself is driving a lot. What proportion of Facebook is politics? What proportion of Twitter is politics? What proportion of YouTube is politics? Uh, what you know, like the media that that we consume, it, it's a it's a very difficult to define sort of line of, of like how much of that should really be talking about a political economy sector is going to be in that political economy sector but it, but it's big it drives things and look at the end of the day uh my friend uh my friend david um has a saying economics is all about incentives that's all you need to know follow the incentives and you'll see how people will behave yeah if you want to know why people are spending a lot of money in politics follow the incentives I think this is a very important way to look at politics. You know, follow the money almost never lets you down because, you know, what's the old saying, you know, your money's where your heart is. Following the money usually gets you close to the truth. Not always, but it'll get you close. Well, it's, and, it's more of the what I say is don't believe the words, believe the actions. Yep. Money, money talks. Other things walk, but we got to be FCC compliant here. Stephen Poppick joining us. One, one more thought on this before we let you go, because I, I love talking about this because, again, economics is stats and figures, but it's practical application, really, mm -hmm. when you think about it. Where's money moving? You know, there's metrics in economics about, you know, the dynamicism of money. How's it moving? How fast? It, the velocity of money through the economy, these things. Should we look at it that way also in things like personal finance, debt, political spending even? It's not just the money's moving. It's how it's moving, how fast it's moving, rates of growth. This is all healthy ways to look at how our money's moving because economics is bigger than just consumer spending now. Economics touches almost everything, doesn't it? I mean, well, economics is is spending, it is investment, it is debt. Um, 
it is the interplay between people. Um, I think a lot of people forget or do not know that Adam Smith, often thought of as the father of modern economics, because he wrote some book called Wealth of Nations. He's actually famous at the time that he was living for a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, not The Wealth of Nations. Uh, and that book was all about how we behave towards each other, how we relate, how we build capital, not machinery capital, but interpersonal capital by working with each other. That was then later taken by Gary Becker and created a whole field of econ called human capital, where we could sort of measure like, what is the value of getting an education? Uh, what is the value of marrying someone who happens to like NASCAR, just like you like NASCAR? Yeah, there's a value there. Um, Ever wonder why those dating sites have algorithms to match with people? Yeah, part of that's informed by our work. Um, you know, so I, I guess econ, econ touches a lot more than, than just dollars and cents. But I, I think at the end of the day, let's 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 just think about what we are incentivizing with our choices. Stephen Poppick. A couple quick hits for you before we let you go here. Um, Just kind of your opinions on these. Your learned but informed opinion on a few things. Interest rates, are they going to, we just had a pretty good jump. Are they going to continue to raise interest rates or are we done for now? I mean, we're going to still see interest rates rising. Um, The debate's really about is it going to be another 75 basis point uh, change, which is a fairly big change if we look at how the historically how the Fed's made changes, or if we're going to start dropping down to 50 basis points. Powell signaled to expect the latter. Let's say uh, Congress, um, the change of Congress, will this have a discernible notice? We, when we get so, the new Congress seated in January, is it going to move the economic numbers one way or the I other? Think, I, think, I think there probably will be some rebalancing between sectors of the economy. But you know, remember, the federal budget really comes up once a year, and that tends to be around August, September is when that big push happens. So the Federal budgets are baked right now, except for special things. Unemployment number, are we going to start seeing a balance between it and the labor shortage, or do you think we keep bumping along kind of where we're at for the foreseeable future? 
I think over the next year, I mean, we should see a slight uptick in the unemployment rate. That just seems the most obvious thing because we've been running at an unemployment rate that most economists are still shocked could be an, an, un, our, our, an unemployment rate that, that we would have an economy sustaining at, yet we keep adding jobs. So the unemployment rate has stayed pretty constant, around 3.5% with the most commonly used metric. Um, I think that we could possibly see a move up, but we're not talking maybe a material difference, right? You know, in the sense of we go from 3.5 to 3.8. Consensus forecast puts it around 3.8, 4.2 at the end of next year. Next GDP number. Who the hell knows? <laughs> uh, it's really, really hard to, to, to finagle that. I, I would say it's probably going to be a positive number, but maybe because we had an, a better than expected third quarter, we probably have a worse than expected, but not negative fourth quarter. The uh, Biden administration and Democratic allies are wearing people out with this chart about global inflation. Uh, part of the story there is when you look at all the developed countries, the, especially, you know, the Western countries that are suffering inflation, our eight-ish percent, which it's bouncing around a little bit, but let's just round it off to eight for conversational cool. purposes. Our 8% inflation rate actually looks pretty good compared to some other countries, especially Turkey, who's pushing 80 right now. Um, does the global inflation crisis affect, hurt, or help our own inflation crisis? Well, I mean, I think that depends on your pers perspective and what you're intending on doing. If you're trying to buy Turkish rugs, maybe that helps you a little bit. Um because our, our dollar is worth more. If you're trying to take a vacation to anywhere in Europe, uh, the dollar is incredibly strong. So your dollar goes further in Europe right now. But then if you're trying to buy goods that come in from overseas to sell to the American market, prices are going up for those goods and they're coming in. I mean, you know, buying them and so like goods are more, more relatively can will still be more expensive, even if the dollar has a little bit of strength. So really just depends on where you are in the perspective. Um, I think it doesn't help our economy get back to a lower inflation rate. I mean, Europe's screaming about some of the stuff that we're doing because Biden is trying to reduce the inflation rate here. The Fed's trying to reduce the inflation rate here. And the European Central Bank is screaming at Jerome Powell to, hey, let's coordinate because you're pushing prices up for us. Well, last I checked, Jerome Powell doesn't work for the European Central Bank. He works for the Federal Reserve of the United States of America. And, and that's they don't a have coordination an cycle starting yeah. up here for and, the president either. And this is a coordination issue. Could we have a better, could we have a, a an inflation, you know, change that would be better, be reduced faster if everybody coordinated? Yes. But this is a game. Let's just run some game theory and look at a little game called the prisoner's dilemma. Sort of where we are. Interesting, interesting. All right. Here, here's your nice juicy one you can sink your teeth into a little bit. Give me the economic bomb that could go off between now and the first of the year. There's a couple things floating out there. There's some news stories out there. What's something that could be bad for the economy? And then I'm going to follow that up with something that could be good for the economy too. But what's a bomb that there may be a landmine out there laying in wait? I mean, the biggest one that comes to my mind immediately is an escalation in the type of conflict that's going on in the Ukraine. Yeah, I think that's that's accurate. If it would to spread or to get worse, uh, who knows what Russia's going to do? I think that's a good one. Um, I'm watching the railroad situation right now. Mm -hmm. That's one that could be bad. I'm also watching the fuel shortage issues because it's not just 
diesel fuel. That's the one getting headlined, but diesel fuel and heating oil fuel are fine together. Those two I mean, things are especially linked. Especially out there in keep Europe. Keep an eye on yeah. that one. Yeah, um, I mean, that, that's a good one, especially in Europe right now. They're, they're going to have to get off of Russian gas. We should have built five more LNG plants on the east we coast. We, we should have built 15 more nuclear plants in the last 20 years, but, you know, save the environment. Yeah, Wu-Tang, right? Uh, all right, last one. Um, politically, when we have a presidential election, which is going to start five minutes after we're done with this, even though we're going to have some runoffs and what, about started. 10 days of election. Yeah. Correction, it's already started. I know Pence is already staffed up. Trump's the rumors are already out. Trump's going to announce on basically in a week and a half or so. What does a presidential election do to the economy normally? Because we're not going to have a normal presidential election, I don't think. Is it something that could really bounce around the economy a little bit? It could certainly do things for things like confidence and what such. But if we have a really ugly presidential campaign, what does that do to the economy? Okay, so first, if we have a really ugly presidential campaign, we're going to have a really ugly presidential campaign. I'm trying to be optimistic here, economist. I'm realistic. Always will be. So what does it do? So I think ultimately, ultimately, yeah, whatever. It's real to me, damn it. Um, So. I I broke him. I broke him. Um, So um, here's here's what I would say on that. Uh, Finally pulled a Sami Zayn. If you get that reference, yeah, you know how that works. Um, How the economy reacts to a political change is going to depend on the shock of that political change. If we go in to, uh, just just an example, let's go into Biden-Trump 2.0. And everything is telling us that Biden's going to win a second term. And then Trump wins. That would have a big change because that would be a dramatic change from expectations. The economy and investment activities in the economy function on future-looking expectations. That's why things often take time to, you know, when we talk about, oh, this report just happened, that's already been baked in. We all, you know, companies already have figured out they're already making plans. So. You know, to the extent that it looks like we have a great certainty on where the election is going to go and we get a shock, that would change it. If the economy is very, if the, if the election is very uncertain, we look like we're 50-50 and it doesn't look like any side has any big advantage, then there's going to be a lot of, of sort of hedging that's going on in the economy. And that's so that how, you know, by, by business leaders, right? So, so again, we can't really say for certain how the economy is going to react to the political election, but it's going to function on, on, on the degree to which the outcome of the election was predicted or not. My yeah. take. Stephen Pavic, always great stuff. I love throwing you stuff that's a little bit of curveballs because your reactions are great. We're going to do this roundtable on wrestling one of these days, my friend. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we come back, especially with all the moving and shaking you got going on in your life. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MotoEconomist, and in two weeks, you can pick up an Economist magazine and read a little bit about the mortgage market uh, with yours truly having a few quotes in it. So I appreciate the time being on here. As always, Andrew, it's always a great time talking to you. That's big doings, man. Congratulations. Good to see you coming up in the world. Hope we don't lose you to a better, uh, bigger, better show that pays better. So until then. Uh, I like you. I'll stick around. <laughs> Talk soon, brother. Thank you for the time. Bye.
Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, that'll do it for her to tell today. Uh, thank you so much for watching and listening, whether you're on the YouTube feed, the Big Talkers Facebook live feed, or on any of the podcasting platforms. Please make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you leave a comment and a rating. We really appreciate that. It lets folks know they can tune into our program and get quality stuff for their time. Make sure you share us on your own social media. We'd sure appreciate it. We got a lot of content out there over a year's worth now. Uh, you can find something for everyone in there. We cover a lot of ground. And we proudly do so. We'll keep doing it as long as you're out there watching and listening. We'll keep putting it out there for you. So till we see you again on whatever way and whatever version of Herd Tell you're enjoying, wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. And we'll talk to you again real soon for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.